but we have not been in Genesis for, for quite a while. Uh, we are actually, uh, because of our study of Genesis, we, we're getting distracted. We're like a um, middle school boy. I'm coaching the middle school boys soccer team. Let me tell you, distraction is the name of the game. My goodness. Like, focus, focus. This is a ball. Your attention should be on the ball. I know there's girls on the other end of the field, the girls team. Focus, ball, right? Um, and so what we're doing is we, we met Melchizedek. Melchizedek is, is one of the most difficult uh, passages in, in particularly in, in the book of Genesis, one of the most difficult in the uh, Bible in general. And one of the things that I think is helpful to understand Melchizedek is we need to understand uh, the story not as it is as, as limited to itself, although we, we did that, but also where it fits in the broader biblical narrative. And this has been really helpful to me, uh, and maybe it hasn't been helpful to you. You've just been patient to show up anyways. Um, but, but we see that the storyline of priests throughout the Bible climaxes in Christ, and then we'll see after that there's, there's another aspect to it uh, that, that applies to us. And so we see really there's, there's two lines of priests in the Bible. We typically think of the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, these are the guys we meet, the Pharisees and Sadducees and, and the Sanhedrin in the New Testament. It's, it's Eli and, and Aaron and, uh, and all those in, in the Old Testament. We, we know them. But there really is, is, a, is a superior priesthood going on that, that we often overlook. And so it begins with Adam. Remember, we go all the way back to the garden where Adam is the first priest king. And we went through all that. We saw it with Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We saw it with Jethro and uh, Samuel um, and, and all that. And you remember, we've got a number of themes coming together. Melchizedek is the priest king, uh, and he's the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. Uh, and he's also priest of the Most High God. And so this theme of priest king, and you can add to that shepherd. And so we've been seeing these characters who, who fit this, this type. Um, and so Abraham is... Is, is a sort of prophet, priest, king, shepherd. Uh, we saw it with Moses. Uh, so even though Aaron is the priest, Moses still acts as a priest. We saw that last week. Um, and to remind you where we, wh- where we finished last week, to tease what we want to look at this week with David, is you remember this, you remember that Eli is the priest. You remember the story of Hannah. Hannah prays to, to have a child, and she dedicates him to the Lord, names him Samuel. Um, and then Eli is the priest, but Eli's boys are, are just a piece of work. Eli is very much like Aaron, called by God as the high priest, but his kids are worthless. And so Aaron has two boys who, who come under the judgment of God, as does Aaron, right? So Eli comes under the judgment of God. Remember, he falls back in his chair, breaks his neck. His two sons die, and, and so his, his household uh, as priest essentially ends. There's one survivor, but that shows up later in the story of David. But the man of God, we don't know his name. Because what matters is not his identity, but his message. He makes this prophecy at the beginning of Samuel. He says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. A couple words to note there. We talked about this briefly last week, so we don't want to spend forever on it. What we're looking for in 1 and 2 Samuel is a priest, not a king. Yet the story of 1 and 2 Samuel is all about kings. Think about it. It's a few chapters later. What are the people of Israel crying about? We want a king like everybody else. Uh, and, and so what does Samuel do? No, but we really want one. 
And God says, you know, give them what they want, right? Let them learn the hard way. There's this thing called taxes, okay? And, and uh, so God's clearly a libertarian. And, and so they get a king. And the first king is Saul. And so, so we're asking ourselves, is Saul uh, the, the anointed one talking here, right? But then you don't have to get very far in the story of Saul, do you? He's a wreck. Now, we do see early on in Saul, he's compared to the prophets. I think we'll, we'll have something up there later about it, right? And, and, and on two times of his, his life, uh, when he's anointed, right? The word anointed means Messiah, or Messiah means anointed, I should say. Uh, the Messiah is the anointed one. Saul is anointed by Samuel the priest. So here's your king priest, Samuel and, and Saul. And the people are looking at Saul saying, he talks and sounds like a prophet. Could he be among the prophets? At the end of his life, remember what Saul does. He has no priest. So what does he do? He conjures up a priest named Samuel. That's, that's the, the witch of, of Endor story. I mean, it's, it's a wild story. We, we looked at it last year in our study of one Samuel. And, uh, and then in, 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 at the end of his life, they mock him saying, well, he must be among the prophets. Right? Well, okay, so Saul doesn't work out. We get the story of David. We get the story of Solomon. And so we're looking for a priest, but it's a story about a king. But when you really read the story, it's not just a story about kings. It's really a story about priests. And we're looking for this priest king here. And so let's, let's briefly look at the story of David, shall we? Uh, uh, real brief look at a few highlights, and then I want to look at some, some specifics. How does the story of David begin? It begins in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. This is where we started our study last year of David. It's the longest biography in the Bible is David. Probably because he's kind of important. It's not Abraham or Moses or even Jesus. It's David. David's the longest biography. Um, and it begins with his anointing. Now, what is the story of his anointing? Samuel is called by God to go into Bethlehem to pick the next king. You remember what he does? He gets the best-looking, tallest guy. He looks for Saul. Well, if the last guy named Saul didn't work out, this is the way government works, state employees. The next guy who looks just like Saul must work, right? Have you ever noticed that with government? I tell you what, can you name anything government can do right? Exactly. Let's give them more responsibility and authority in our lives, right? This is, this is how, how we function, isn't it? See, God is a libertarian. Uh, with that, um, um, so what happens is there's, there's seven sons, right? Am I correct in that? There's seven? That's, a, that's an interesting number. We should probably highlight that. But there's seven sons. But there's one missing. And what is he doing? He's a shepherd. Now with the storyline we follow, we have followed, particularly since Abraham, who is a priest, he's a chieftain, a king, and he's a shepherd. As is Isaac and Jacob and Jethro and Moses. God calls Moses at the burning bush when he's a shepherd. He's come out of the house of a king. So he's, he's, he's got prince, he's got royalty, but he then acts as a priest in the story. And so what do we meet here? We meet one called to be a king while he is a shepherd. That's why our series on David has been called David, the shepherd who would be king. And then this year we will look at David, the king who would be a shepherd. Because he, he rules and reigns as a shepherd, not as an authoritarian. So we get this in chapter 16. Uh, he sent and brought him in. It's David. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Easy, ladies. Easy. Okay. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. There's that word right there. It takes us all the way back to chapter 2. That God will raise up one whom, who will be Messiah, whom he will anoint. It will be his anointed one. But Samuel here is calling a king. God had promised a priest. 
So what, what do we do with this? Uh, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. That language uh, is striking, isn't it? God rushes upon David. He's now indwelt with, with God's Spirit, much as Saul had. This is a clear anointing, the sort of anointing we would see that of a priest. But he's called to be a king. Well, what's the first major event that David does immediately after this? You remember what it is? It's Goliath, right? Yeah. And then after that, we, we, we don't know anything David does because we stop after Goliath, right, in our Sunday school material. And then we move on to Solomon, right? It's pretty much the way, way it works, right? But what is the story of, of Goliath? If we had time, we could really go crazy with Goliath. Um, but what is the story of Goliath? Well, it's no accident. One that has been anointed will now slay a giant, think of the Nephilim, and will crush his skull. Does any of this sound familiar? Genesis 3 to 6. Genesis 3, remember, the promise is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Now, Goliath, remember, he is, he is decorated with serpentine images from, from the, the, his leather to his shield to his, to, to his helmet. Everything's very, very serpentine. So here he comes and he, he crushes the head of Goliath. It's clearly connected to, to the prophecy. So the reader is thinking, maybe David is it. Maybe David is not just the fulfillment of, of, of the prophecy to Eli, but the prophecy given to um, Adam and Eve. One last thing it takes place in 2 Samuel. So 2 Samuel 6. Did I tell you all to turn there? I may not have. 2 Samuel 6. So look, just look there very briefly. 2 Samuel 6. What happens here is that David moves the capital city to Jerusalem. Now, prior to this, Israel did not control Jerusalem. It was still a Canaanite city. Now, pause for a minute with our study of the priests. Is this significant? Who is the first king of Jerusalem in the Bible that we meet? It's Melchizedek. Now comes one anointed by God as king. He will move the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant to Salem, to Jerusalem. You see a connection? So you have Melchizedek coming out to meet Abraham, and now you have the seed of Abraham, the one who crushes the, the skulls of giants and snakes. Now he is setting up the presence of God in the city of David, Jerusalem itself. So 2 Samuel 6, starting in verse 12. You'll recognize some of this as this is when David goes all Pentecostal on us. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. Pause there for a minute. We'll keep going, but pause there. A couple things to note here. This is the world's slowest parade. Okay? I'm sure you've been to a Christmas parade that is 40 below, and you're only there because your, your, your third cousin twice removed on your mother's side that, that you've not even met that family, they're playing a trumpet or something. I, I don't know. They're, they're, they, they've, they've got a small part, and they're dressed up, and you're invited. And it, that's a slow parade, right? You don't want to be there. They're not throwing out enough candy, and you can't get past all the kids to get it. That's a slow parade. What this is is carrying the ark, six steps. One, two, right? 
and you stop, and then you got to make a sacrifice. I'm just guessing here, that probably takes a while. I've not killed a lot of ox in my life, but I'm guessing this is a slow process. Now, six steps, which means what do you do on the seventh? You make a sacrifice. In this, in this ring a bell? In this seem significant? And by the way, who is making the offering in this text? It's David. That's the job of a priest. It's not supposed to be the job of a king. One of the things you're going to find and that's been really helpful for me in this study is in my head, because I'm a good American, is there is the spiritual, and then there is, or there is there's the sacred, and there's the secular. And I've done this with the priest king. Priest over here, they do their thing, and they leave the king alone. King over here does his thing, he leaves the priest alone. Is that that's the way you've always thought of it? Well, that, that's a very American of me, right? I don't need no governor present telling me what to do. And I'll complain to my family behind his back everything the governor president does, right? That's the way we, we sort of function as Americans. What you see here is there's places where that's true. Uzziah gets in a lot of trouble because he oversteps his bounds. So here, here's a king that, that thinks he's a priest, but he's not. At the same time, um, you see a real blurring at times because, because the priesthood of David is superior to the priesthood of Aaron. Right? And this is going to take us right into the story of Jesus. Um, and also notice, what is David wearing here? He's not wearing a royal robe, what we would expect of the king. He's wearing an ephod. And we looked at the ephod, I believe, last week or week before that. Ephod is a priestly garment. It's all you need to know. Right? It's got gems that take us back to the Garden of Eden. So, so it's got a lot of symbolism in it. Uh, the idea is, is that you would be bright much the same way that Moses came down and shined. That was purpose. We, we didn't get to look at all that. So, so David is, he, he's king, wearing priestly garments, leading the priest with the presence of God, making sacrifice as priest. He's the priest king. But then notice what he does starting in verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing for the Lord. She despised him in her heart. They need marriage counseling right here, right? Uh, he is just embarrassing her, right? I'm on her side because I'm a Baptist. You're not supposed to dance in church. I don't care if it is in the Bible, right? That's me. Now, remember, Michal uh, is Saul's daughter, as the text says. You remember how he got her? He beat Goliath and then was denied Michal. He had to go get her again, right? It, it's drama that would fit only for Ricky Lake. Um, verse 17, and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for. Now, who is pitching the tent? David. He's, he's not a priest, but he's the one doing the function of the priest. This is the job of the priest, according to the book of Exodus. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now, again, he's acting as priest. And when David had finished the uh, burnt offerings, peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. This is all the work of a priest. Notice here, you, you have worship, you have celebration, and you have a sharing of a meal. And who is at the center of this? It's the priest king, it's David. He is another type of Melchizedek. So, so that, that's, that's, that's the narrative there. And we could look at other examples, but for the sake of time, those three 
uh, parts are really important. In fact, if, if you want to keep reading in 2 Samuel, and Lord willing, we'll be in this, in this passage later this year on, on a Sunday morning. Chapter 7 is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, developing the, the theme. 2 Samuel 7 is for David what Genesis 12 is to Abraham. Genesis 12 is the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you, right? I'll give you land and a son and, and, and all that. Well, in 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant, where God says that you will never lack an heir on the throne of Israel. That is ultimately about Jesus. Ultimately. Now, it's more complicated than that, but it's ultimately about him. So when on the, at the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, what are they shouting? Hosanna, son of David. That is all rooted in the promises of, of 2 Samuel 7. So notice what you have here. You have the king who's become priest who now enters a covenant with an eternal covenant with God. This is ultimately what Jesus is going to do for us. Okay, with that, uh, what else can we say about David and, and his, his priesthood? A couple of things. Is it's very clear David identifies with the priest throughout the biblical text. We see a few examples already. Let's look at another in a parallel in 1 Corinthians 15. David and the elders of Israel, commanders of thousands, went up to the Ark of uh, the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Same story we read except from Samuel's pen. Because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. That sounds important, that number seven. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the Ark. Now, now don't, over, don't, don't miss that detail. You see the clothes, rightly so. It's repeated at the end of verse 27 that David wore a linen ephod. But notice there, David is numbered among the Levites. It's David with the Levites. He's equal to them in many ways. Not he's a king who, who's in charge of all these people, but he, he's a priest with the other fellow priests. Now, I mentioned this earlier. Compare this with, with Saul in 1 Samuel 10. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul right after his anointing, and he prophesied among them. When all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, uh, Who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the, the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. That's an important detail. Because remember, the Garden of Eden is essentially a mountain, at least figuratively in Ezekiel. So Saul prophesies, goes to a high place. What does David do? He's bringing the Ark of the Covenant to a high place, and he's being numbered, not among the prophets, but among the priests. He's clearly identified with the priests in the biblical text. Secondly, he, he dresses like the priests. Remember that, that in Exodus, we see that the priests wear, it's called a turban, but the word is crown. It's essentially, it's a crown. It's a priestly crown. That's different from a, a royal crown, but it's still a a, decor a decorated head is a crown. And, and so we shouldn't be surprised to see the, the mixing of, of these. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 15, right? He's, he's wearing a linen ephod. We saw it in 2 Samuel 6, we just read. Again, he's wearing the, the linen ephod. Now, the ephod is clearly associated with the Levitical priest. Here in Exodus 28, uh, these are the garments they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat, right? There's a turban. It's a it's a crown. Samuel wore an ephod. He's a priest. Samuel was ministered for the Lord. A boy clothed with linen ephod. 
So there's a priest wearing one. Ahijah, uh, it's an awesome name. He wore one. Um, Ichabod's brother. Eh, we don't talk enough about Ichabod unless, unless you're talking about the guy, the headless horseman. A guy named Nob wore one. He's another priest. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. That's a way of saying 85 priests. Oh, wait, we looked at this story last year. Um, that killed, killed all the priests. One survives, runs to David. Thus, the one who wears the ephod is a priest. But again, if you just read First and Second Samuel, just read over it, you, you don't catch this stuff. You think, okay, David's king. He does weird stuff, like what do you do with him dancing? In what we would say in Baptist circles isn't enough clothes. Let's, let's be honest. That's the way we usually present that story. So we take McCall's perspective. Right? That's not right behavior in church. You shouldn't dance. You shouldn't even raise your hand, you pagan. Right? That's the way we act. But in, when you actually read the story, what are we actually seeing here? David is priest king, leading his people to the new Garden of Eden, the high place, Jerusalem, where God will dwell with his people. So of course he's, he's going to dance and celebrate. Of course he's going to wear the linen ephod. He's not king. He's priest in that narrative. So, so actually, McCall is, is out of line there. Uh, thirdly, we talk about David moves the ark to Jerusalem. Uh, the ark represents God's presence. The tabernacle, later the temple, houses the ark, the presence of God. So this is a big, big deal. You see that, that the house of Obed-Edom, where the ark was, was being blessed by God. Because right? that's, that's where the ark is. And so when it's moved to Jerusalem, the new Salem, uh, it will be blessed by God. And that is where God is going to dwell. How about David praying as a priest? In 1 Chronicles 17... For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Now, does that language sound familiar, David, uh, that there's going to be a house built? The prophecy made to Eli before his death from the man of God is, My anointed one, I will build a house for. And what does David do in this prayer? He says, You have promised, you've revealed to your servant that you will build a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. Typically, you would go to a priest to pray. Have you really thought about this? Where's our priest? We don't have one. I'm not a priest. Right? I, don't, I don't like collars enough as it is. I could not wear one uh, in order to pray. Um, but we don't have priests in, in Protestant circles, or at least Baptist circles, um, because of our belief that you uh, are a priest. The, the priesthood of, of believers. We'll get to that in a few weeks. And so David here doesn't go to a priest. He goes directly to God, like Moses did, uh, like Abraham did. Builds an altar to the Lord and goes directly to him. Remember, Isaac meets uh, God with, with the ladder and all, all that sort of stuff. Um, so what we have here is David praying for the courage to enter the presence of God in prayer. That's the sort of courage we would see the high priest have on the Day of Atonement when you walk into the Holy of Holies. Um, how about David fulfills the responsibilities of priests? He does this in at least two occasions. One, he leads the procession of priests carrying the ark. We saw that story. Uh, so he commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly musical instruments, harps, right? He's saying, this is how we're going to do it. I'm the main priest now. Look at me. I'm the captain now, he would say. Uh, we also see that David offers burnt offerings. They brought in the ark of God, set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. They offered burnt offerings, peace offerings for God. We saw that in 2 Samuel. So David fulfills the responsibilities of 
of priests. Sixthly, the Old Testament treats David as a priest. If, if we were to go back to Numbers 25, we meet Aaron's grandson, a kid named Phineas. He had a really long summer vacation. Okay? And uh, there's a story where a group of Israelites were wanting to sacrifice uh, to Baal or Baal. They were wanting to do it at, at Peor, I think is how you pronounce it. The Moabites were, were enticing them, right? So this is a, a, a repeat of the Garden of Eden story, right? They're being enticed to, to, to follow after other gods. Right? Well, one priest is bold enough to, to deal with it. In Numbers 25, it says, Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, tabernacle. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, uh, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in hand. It's going to get real good now, right? He didn't take his linen ephod this time. <laughs> he took spear. Now, we were not taught javelin throwing in seminary, and clearly that was a mistake, right? The priest grabs a spear, went after the man of Israel into the chamber, and pierced both of them. Right? It just got good, didn't it? I mean, he goes all Steppenwolf on it, right? He just, Aquaman going right after him. The man of Israel and the woman threw their belly. That's just right through him. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Okay? That's the story. So Phineas, I'm sure Ferb was somewhere else. Uh, he, he sees this is coming. Here they are. They're in worship, tent of meeting tabernacle in the presence of God. And what, what does he see? He sees a man with his Midianite wife bringing false worship into the tent of meeting. <laughs> Honey, I'll be right back. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm guessing this is their version of the Second Amendment. Picks it up and just goes all Olympics on them, right? It's, it's a great shot. Now, this story is reminiscent of Ananias and Sapphira, isn't it? Remember, Ananias and Sapphira comes in, into the house of God Claiming something isn't true. And Peter says, why are you lying to God? And they're struck dead. Peter must not have had a spear on him. Otherwise, he would have done it. So God took care of it for him. Here, Phineas takes the spear himself. And remember, what is the point of a priest? When we think of priests, we think, well, they burn stuff and they kill animals. That's their job. Their primary function is to guard and to keep the presence of God among the people. Remember, this is Adam's function. That he has to guard the garden. And what's the next thing that happens in the story of Adam? A, a, a cunning, unclean animal enters into the presence of God. Enters into God's temple and deceives humanity. He failed his role as priest to guard the temple of God. What does Phineas do? He's going to guard the presence of God among his people. Because there's this plague going out. He says, I know what the problem is. You've, you, you've made the, the, God's people unclean. So he deals with it in a very violent, bloody way. Let's see Zack Snyder take, take on this story. Well, in Psalm 106, it picks up on this. Psalm 106 says, Then Phineas stood up and intervened with a javelin. And then it says, And the plague was stayed. So, 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 so you, you got to get that story, right? That's the background. A priest, weaponized, going to deal with it his, his, his way to the glory of God. Now turn to 2 Samuel 24. 
2 Samuel 24, verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. Now Paul's there. Why is David building the altar? He's king, he's not priest. Unless, of course, he is a priest king. None of the Aaronic family. Now, there is a connection between the line of Judah and the line of Aaron. Uh, Judah's sister married into the, the line of Levi. But Judahites aren't priests. The Levites are. But here we see David doing this. He builds an altar to the Lord. Um, verse 19, David went up at Gath's word as the Lord commanded when Arauna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. Arauna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arauna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from among the people. And Arauna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing floor threshing sledges and the yoke of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arauna gives to the king. Arauna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arauna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the, to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord so the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Sounds, sound familiar? It's the story of Phineas. Minus the javelin part. Now, David's already killed his 10,000, so you know, don't, don't, get, don't panic too much. But it's the same story. Phineas the priest, his actions got rid of the plague. David's actions, not as king. He's called king here. That's what he is. But his actions as a priest's stays the plague, gets rid of it. So we have the same story. But David is not of the line of Levi. He's of a superior line. And by the way, notice, that's how 2 Samuel ends. 1 and 2 Samuel are essentially one book, much the same way Luke acts as one book. It's one book. So how does it open up? It opens up with a prophet, the man of God, telling Eli, there is one that I will anoint... I will build him a house, and he will be my priest forever. What do we get at the end of the story? We get, we get all this stuff about kings and land and borders and all this sort of stuff. But how does it end? The priest king, the anointed one, anointed by Samuel, he, he will build a house through his son Solomon, or God will build a house through his son Solomon. He will prepare it, but he will protect his people from a plague. He will make them clean again. That's the role of a priest, not that of a king. It's incredible, isn't it? It's right there in the text, but we miss it so often. Uh, one other thing worth... Um, yeah, that's okay. Uh, more we can say about that. Lastly, were David's sons priests? Oh, you tell me what to do with this verse. So David reigned over all Israel... And David administered justice and equity to all of his people. And Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. I've, I've skipped some. It's secretaries and clerks and 
campaign managers and chief of staff and all that sort of stuff. But you see there, uh, Ahimelech, that means Ahimelech, something, my something is king, son of Abiathar, my father is something. Anyways, Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and David's sons were priests. Now, that ain't right. They can't be priests. They're not Levites. Now, your translation may, may fix that a little bit. I don't know. I believe the chronicler, he fixes it a little bit. Because the text isn't saying they were priests in, in, in the way that they're, they're in the temple every day, you know, killing doves and, and lambs and bulls and stuff. But it is to show that there is a connection between David and his line, the line of kings, with the priesthood is very, very important in, in, in the broader narrative of the Bible. So we get 1 Samuel opens up with the hope of a new priest and priesthood and a new priesthood that would replace the old. And it ends with Samuel doing precisely that. So with that said, turn finally to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is, is, is the psalm, one of the most quoted psalms by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. It's very, very important. You tell me if any of this rings a bell after, it's like our fourth week talking about Melchizedek and all the priests of the Bible. And we've probably got like two weeks left. This is a psalm of David. That's going to be important detail. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, does that verse sound familiar to you? You know your New Testament? You remember that, that uh, in fact, I think we're going to look at this Friday. Um, the, the religious elites come to Jesus and, and you know, say, well, by what authority can, can you say this? And uh, No, we're going to look at a different question Friday. But they all run together. Um, and Jesus says, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. Now, what do you do with Psalm 110.1? The Lord, David, um, said to my Lord. Now, if you're king, who's above you? Ain't nobody above you. You're the king. So what we have here is a distinction between Yahweh and the Lord here and David. David is the one speaking. Yahweh said to my Lord. Who's that guy? Of course, Jesus is saying, hey, all you seminary graduates with PhDs and fancy robes and, 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 and your own YouTube channel. Did you skip this verse in Sunday school class? Kind of a big one. So you, what you have here is a king who has a king above him. And Jesus says, that's me. <laughs> that's me. The son of David. That's me. Right? And also what he says, sit at my right hand. So notice that. My Lord, David's Lord, is sit at the right hand of Yahweh until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the apostles read that and they say, ah, that's what Jesus accomplished at the resurrection. This is the language of crushing the head of a serpent. Your enemies are now your footstool. You've conquered them. The Lord sends forth from Zion, that's Jerusalem. Remember, that goes all the way back to Melchizedek. Your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. That's king, royal language. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Holy garments. That's, that's interesting there, isn't it? Um, hmm. 
from the womb of the morning. Isn't that beautiful language? It's good poetry. The womb of the morning means the, the sunrise. Um, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who's the you there? It's David's Lord. Now, if you've been studying the story of David like we have, you're going to say to yourself, self, David is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. But David is saying, no, there is one coming after me who is of a greater priesthood, not of a priesthood of Levi or Aaron or for the matter of, or even of that of Eli, of a priesthood of Melchizedek, a superior one. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Notice, this Lord, this king will do things as a priest that David himself cannot accomplish. Because Jesus is a true and better David. Jesus is a true and better priest. That's the good news of the gospel. So, not only that, but if you look at the story of David, remember what we do with Saul. We're looking at Saul thinking, could he be the anointed one? And then we see that Saul's a rough guy. And then we turn to David, and we see all the good stuff David does, rising all the way up to his, his crowning as king. And then what starts to happen? David starts to unravel. Now, the chronicler skips over a lot of that because he has his own theological purpose. He's coming at the end of the Babylon captivity, uh, trying to remind people of their heritage and the hope of Israel. But the writer of 2 Samuel is more than willing to let the reader know this David who is great and awesome and is an incredible priest king is deeply flawed and broken. What you need is one who is greater than he. Enters Jesus, as we'll see next week. He plays the role of priest in the Gospels. And the writer of Hebrews makes it explicitly clear, quoting Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. Jesus is priest, not of the order of Aaron and Levi, but of the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, he enters into the presence of God, not in a building, but in the throne room himself, itself. And as priest, he offers atonement. And as lamb, he is the sacrifice of atonement. Therefore, it is an eternal kingdom. It's an eternal priesthood. So that when we cry out for redemption, it is finished forever for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And it all starts with little Melchizedek, right? And that cool? All right, any questions I can dodge? All right, good deal.